Hello, I'm Stephanie Lewell. Welcome to my podcast, Service Time Confessions of a Diving Junkie, where I chinwag with people who are like me, scuba diver and chronic addicts to being underwater. During the surface time today, I caught up with my friend Caben Ling for some coffee while he was transiting en route to Malaysia for a quick dip in Sipadan. We first met at an underwater photography competition in Timor-Leste over 10 years ago. Back then, he was a hobbyist photographer and clearly a talented one as he participated and won that competition. So, a decade on, he is now an award-winning cinematographer and highly regarded Mr. Inspector Gadget. Hi, Kay. Thanks right. for joining me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. What brought you to Singapore? I'm actually on my way to Malaysia where I need to check on my gear. I haven't been able to travel because Western Australia has been very strict on travel, even for its residents. So now that they've opened up, Singapore's opened up and Malaysia has opened up as well. I get to fly back, check on my gear. And the Malaysian Diving Expo happens to be on on the end of this month. So I'll be attending MID. And I also will be taking the opportunity to head off to Sipadan for four days to test some equipment. Okay. So. Not to see sea turtles. That's part of the testing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, they will still respond to your gear. Yeah, yeah. I hope to be able to do some filming. It's actually testing of GoPro equipment and mm. related equipment for its gear that I'm planning to use on certain assignments and group travels where packing light is necessary. Fingers crossed, everything works together nicely. Traveling light, generally speaking, does not exist for any <laughs> skipper diver travel. <laughs> you tell me. Most of the time when I travel and it's for work, I can't get the wave anything less than 45 kilos. Okay. Yeah, most of the time. And of that, just under 20 is dive equipment. The rest is all camera equipment, plus some clothes which I use as padding. I have been known to travel up to like even a hundred kilos but on some assignments when things like scooters might be. But this is extremely refreshing. I believe that the technology has advanced to a, such a level that even a lot of the consumer grade cameras provide such incredible pictures and video that it's unnecessary to use production level equipment unless you're shooting for production. And even then, I find that a lot of production companies now are willing to accept consumer grade camera provided footage as long as it's a shot well. So it's getting back to basics for me. I, I, I'm really looking forward to traveling light, showing what cameras that everyone can get, can do, and uh, basically being back in the ocean. That's good. I'm planning out for the rest of the year and for next. After this, I'll be diving in Portugal. Norway is still on in November. All those places I am planning to travel like this time. Unless I'm told to collect footage for work, then my go-to will now be as light as possible. Okay, so where was your last memorable dive? There have been so many. There were so many firsts. Even in the year before COVID hit, that was my first time swimming with uh, orcas in Norway, for example. Every trip for the blue whales has been marvel. I think it still has to be a few years back when I was shooting on assignment for 
production company filming Great Whites in Mexico. I was in Mexico for almost a month. And prior to that, I was also there shooting additional footage for them. That probably has to be the most memorable trip. There are a few reasons for that. That was the first time I've ever been in a submersible rolling cage. So they put me in this cage, which is literally a submarine and it has a pilot behind. We all wearing full face masks. I get to tell the pilot which way I want to go. And we'd swim right next to great whites and we could go any depth, all directions, but based on diving principles. Mm -hmm. So we'd still have to do, you know, watch on NDLs and the amount of air we had. So it was fascinating to do. And the other was because while I was filming on that assignment, one of the great whites breached the cage that was attached to the boat. Yes. It went viral. So that viral footage was provided by someone else. I was on my break and I was in that cage in the corner right before this incident happened. I was actually drawing off and climbed up to the top deck to see what was going on. And if you watch that video again, you could probably hear my voice in there. Really? Yeah. This, oh my God, I, I couldn't believe that there was someone in the, when the great white crashed in, because all I saw was a bang, big splash, and then the tail thrashing around. And it's not behavior that we expected. No one's ever seen something like this happen. They don't attack the cages. Generally, great whites, they know when to stop. They'll come up, they'll chew on propellers. They know what they're, they're moving into. So that for me was strange and it was slightly terrifying for me to watch that happen because of my friend's school, by the way, was mm -hmm. okay. He got displaced mm -hmm. by the shark as the shark went in uh -huh. and he was hanging because you're heavily weighted when you're in the cage, he was hanging under the cage until the shark got let out from the top. Wow. Then they pulled him up. Any idea or any explanation is what triggered the shark to behave so mm. aggressively? None. They're wild creatures, right? A lot of these boats that go out to sea, like whites, they will use baiting techniques which I know some people from on as well. It really depends on how it's done. You're not supposed to lure them to the point where they're right next to the cage. It's just to get them around the area. But if a shark happens to be aggressive, and this was actually a juvenile, it was fast, it was playful. Mm -hmm. I don't think it, its intention was to ram the cage, but that's exactly what happened. The shark was fine. I don't think it was in any real danger at that point. And the staff reacted very quickly mm -hmm. to make sure that the shark could be released the cage. Could have been stronger. It's a close shave situation. Mm. I want to ask you a bit more about the great one because I, I obviously saw the footage, mm. the the dramatic one, but there's there's also the other one for a production. Yes. So I'm curious as mm. to how long did that take you to prepare for the trip, and what do you need to do in order to do that? Every time we do a show like this, usually researchers involved. Mm. Um, Almost every show I do, the researchers are a big part of it. Otherwise there's no show. They are the reason why we have a story to tell in the first place. On my part, I was just the cameraman and the drone guy. So all I do was film and my producers tell me, okay, if you can, could you capture this or that? And it's not a zoo. I capture what's in front of me. If you take me to a place which is not very productive, then if I can't be productive either, but what they are telling me in general is to look out for certain things, which is great because then when I see that happening, I pay extra attention instead of changing focus or something. In terms of preparation, there really isn't any except for what they usually tell you about thermal protection and stuff like that. And of course, there are warnings about what to do and what not to do. 
liability issues. Don't stick mm-hmm. out too far, which it's up to you if you want to fall off. You're there and your job is fulfilled and you get what you get. But when you have things like that roving submersible cage, then it opens it all. How else are you going to be able to swim alongside a great white underneath and film with claspers and the tail and just follow it as it swims? Just no other way to follow it. Even if you didn't have the cage, you would never be able to go fast enough and mm-hmm. close enough to get that kind of angle. You need something like this. Mm-hmm. How did that work? Did they just not see you, feel you? They didn't care. Did they, they didn't care about the sounds. They were not at the least worried. And I'm talking not just the big ones, even the smaller sharks. Literally, I could reach out and probably if I wanted to, and that would be even a belly rub. It was that close. We were really careful to make sure that we don't actually bump or touch the shark. And in some cases, the shark would speed off. Sometimes they would turn around and come straight at us. And I would have to say to the pilot, slow down, stop. Mm-hmm. It's just coming straight. We are playing chicken at it. Yeah. So we slow down, stop, and as a cameraman, just keep on rolling and hope that someone makes a decision to turn left or right. It was a really exciting experience. And just being in that situation and knowing that this is just impossible to do in any other scenario, that's probably why it's the most burned deep in my mind. I won't ever forget that. I was very grateful to the show for giving me a chance to do Mm -hmm. that. They interviewed me about some of the experiences as well, because when you see the footage, always what the camera sees stuck out of the cage as it swims along. But when you think about it, it's so incredible to actually imagine how was that shot? Yeah. Was it like a ROV? Did you have a little submersible following? But I was the submersible. Pretty mm. much. And I would go in a heartbeat again. Yeah. It's, it's incredible though. Obviously when I look at photos and the films and, mm. and I don't just look at the picture. Like you say earlier, how did he get that angle? How did you get so often close? Swim with world shot ones. It's so hard to keep up. And this is a question that dive photographers and videographers, they ask themselves all the time. How did he do that? Because to the average lay person that doesn't dive, it's a pretty shot. Nobody asks any questions. When was the last time you saw a picture of a, a lion or a cheetah and you thought, beautiful shot? Have you ever asked yourself, how do you get that close? How was it even possible? Most people look at nature photos and nature videos and they just, wow, that's gorgeous. But they don't ask what goes into making that shot. Yeah. And it's a lot. There's a lot of luck. Then there's planning. A lot of it's just things that if you dive, you would be used to, to knowing, okay, you can't be that deep, for example. Mm-hmm. It's a very u- unique experience because your body is practically the pilot. Yeah, he's the one that pretty much decides where I go. We had individual bailout tanks. So if something went wrong, the submersible would be neutral and easily floated up if we needed to. In case of a big emergency, we could get out. Mm-hmm. with the bailout tanks. But in general, shots, as in all my diving experience, if the visibility is good and they can see you, and if you don't bother them, they're not creatures that would want to attack you and eat you. Divers do know that. So I didn't feel threatened. I didn't feel worried so mm-hmm. much in any way. Of course, that was a thrill. <laughs> Before this episode, I actually did my on the tour homework, like stalking your, your Facebook, your Vimeo. I have known this guy like a long time ago. 
Yeah, when I first started off, that's when I met you in Timor. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was my first competition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was fun. But How was that for you? It, it is a very unique trip, mm -hmm. I have to say. Yeah, we got to go on the helicopter. <laughs> Seriously, to date, I don't know any dive competitions that take you to survey dive sites for all contestants via helicopter before you go on the competition. They literally said, this is going to be dive site. You'll be diving here. See that there? You'll be diving there. I mean, none of us can. All we were doing selfies. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite a in this wall. Uh, yeah, I think so. Because he spoke with a very Russian accent. I think he offered us vodka or something. Already? And yeah. Did you have your safety briefing in Russian or English? Okay. Uh, that, that might have been a joke about the vodka, but it was funny because it was a Russian military helicopter. <laughs> and the president came to give out the prizes. Can you believe that? Yes. Yeah, that, that was incredible. They did a second year. No, they could never do that again. I think it became quite difficult. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's almost uh, over a decade ago. And you have transformed yourself. It's more of an evolution. I had sold my business and I was very young before I picked up diving and then dove a lot, cut mm -hmm. into the photography side of things. And that was the point where I figured, okay, might not be too bad at the photography side of things and join some competitions, including that one. But because I was looking to do something more commercial with my skills, I realized very quickly that there's not much money in photography. And you have to be very skilled, not just in the photography side of things, but how to market yourself and turn that into a commercially like situation. And there are a few people in the industry that I hugely admire that have been able to do that. Like Dr. Alex Mustard, for example. It was suggested to me that maybe I should look into video work. And uh, because video generally pays fairly well compared to photos. If you have an eye for photography, video isn't that far behind. It's basically capturing 30 still images every second. So as long as you continually move in a way and you realize that the camera is constantly rolling, it's not that hard if you understand the principles of lighting and how to frame a subject. And so that's what I did. Overnight, I sold all my camera gear, all my lenses. I just took them all out and said, okay, all these things have to go. And I did a quick calculation and decided, okay, now I need to buy something that would take this place. It would have to be bare minimum, something that the production company would hire me was the first generation of the Sony mirrorless cameras. Mm -hmm. And uh, that would record production level quality and the housing for this, that was made by Nauticam. This was the very first one they made. Actually, the BBC were waiting for the same unit, but because I ordered very much earlier. It got sent to me first mm -hmm. while I was in Indonesia. And I got lucky when I started doing some work and it got picked up by people that look on YouTube. If there's anyone out there that's interested in doing video work, just keep on posting. If the work is good, it gets noticed. Yeah. I think for Marine, you're right. It's not easy. No, it's not easy to break in. I, I was extremely lucky. You get a call. And during that call, you agree to do the work. And then if you do the work and you do it well, and if you're an affable character, and if you contribute to the team, then you get hired. Then you get hired again and again. But yeah, that first test is not easy to get. And if you can get that opportunity, just work real hard and be a team member. And if your team members like you, you get called back. In general, once you have a foot in, people tend to call you again and again because 
companies don't like to work with new people all the time. So yeah. it's getting that foot in that's hard, but I see a lot of incredible footage these days. Social media is just blown up. Was it 10 years ago that we first yeah, met? Yeah, I think so. So in those 10 years, things have changed so much. Quality of photos have improved tremendously. Any of the photos that we took during those days in the competitions would not do well today. I'll be very frank. Technology has really evolved. I think it's not so much the technology. You could probably give any of these new people cameras from back in the day and mm -hmm. they would still take an incredible shot. Mm -hmm. What I believe that it's actually social media that's hell. So when everyone gets to post a picture, the need to outdo each other is so great. It sets the bar for new standards every year. So as the years go by, you look at footage and you look at, at photos. I need to do better than that. That was shot five years ago. I need to do better than this. Oh my God. Why didn't I think of this? Everything that's been done is shot. Everything that you can think of has been shot. It gets harder and harder, but the standards go up each time. It's not just because of competition. It's because Facebook and Instagram and uh, what captures someone's attention. And if it hasn't been done before, obviously it's going to be something new and people are going to be interested. So I have a huge respect for the famous photographers that are out there still, or new guys that are coming in that are managing to make a mark within the industry. Back in the day, it was probably a lot easier. You're right about the equipment to a certain standard, but so much of it is just how things are shot. Yeah. Thinking outside the box, knowing the limits of your equipment. Everything is always incremental. You did this. So maybe if I tweaked it a little bit, we could have something new. It's been tweaked so much that stuff from 10 years ago is it's a waste of time. Not necessarily. It's extremely captured and then really strong. Yeah. There, there's some that are still, you know, iconic and incredible photos. That's for sure. Yeah. 10 years ago, marine life was so different. Back then when we were diving, if you go to the same dive spots today, you can notice that there is a decline in the amount of marine life. I was in Sipadan maybe just before COVID as well. Prior to that, I, I had not been there for many years. That was one of the first places I dove after I got certified. And I did a lot of my early photography practice over there. But when I went back again, it was good, but it wasn't quite that remembered. I'm mm -hmm. curious to see what it's going to be like when I go there this time. Because it's been two years, there have been very few divers. Some people have actually been mess messaging me and telling me it's fantastic. Maybe this reset was good in some ways. I don't know how long the last for. I'm hoping to go there and find out too. So it's something yeah. else I'm interested in seeing. You know, not just how well the equipment performs, but is it as epic as I've always remembered it to be? Or more? Yeah. Because it's been two years of break. Yeah, two years That's back crazy. then. It was good, but maybe it's... Even better. When I first went there, I remember my eyes like wide open. I saw barracudas coming down, funneling down into massive vortex and then coming back up again. And I've got fantastic 12 megapixel photos <laughs> <laughs> from the cameras back then. <laughs> I think you have a nice package of what you do. You go diving, which you blend the photography, you move into cinematography, mm -hmm. and then you get to do then it put you in the category of a thrill seeker or adrenaline junkie. Okay. You go to all the places for most people, they just have it on their bucket list. <laughs> but you have your bucket list TikTok. I'm extremely lucky when it comes to that. 
um, everyone can have a bucket list. I think you need both time and the financial resources to take these things off. Mm -hmm, yeah. Some of these experiences can be so expensive. Even if you had the finances, do you have the time within our short lifespans? Even if you just tick one off once a year, mm -hmm. how many could you literally tick off? It's not easy. So like I said, I've been extremely lucky in the sense that uh, once I chose to do it commercially and I was given the opportunity to do my producers, I mean, okay, these are the assignments. Which ones do you want? I would love to go to Mozambique to shoot for whatever reason, for example. And that was the mistake. Okay. <laughs> what happened? That was a really tough assignment. It was fun. Don't get me wrong. I, yeah. Great. It was an adventure. Uh, I made fantastic friends with my team, but man, I was washing my gear in like brown water. It was not easy because some of these locations and facilities were not great, right? You had to haul gear down the beach, like one and a half kilometers to get into the water to your entry point. And, mm -hmm. so, and with a production camera on land with lights that like almost 18 kilos of camera and mm -hmm. hauling all this. It, it was just hard work. It was worth doing because then you realize if it's this difficult, then not many people done it. So if there's anything to see, you're probably going to be one of the few to record something like this. I may should get footage of a loggerhead turtles being rescued from nets and things like that. Unfortunately, we also got mantas being trapped in gill nets as well. It was meant to document the difficulties along the, the African coast and the things that happened. It was a great trip, but it was hard. Yeah, I think people need to appreciate the sample. What? The, uh, what they see is just the, the end product, which is going to be fine. Mm -hmm. They need sugar-coated, yeah. the glitters and the sound. And it's not all liveaboard. Break up breakfast, go dive. Water, <laughs> carrying everything. Yeah, you. exactly. And then you come up from a trip like that, and then you go off to Indonesia on one of those amazing liveaboards there. Everything is handed to you. And you mm -hmm. Your dive gear is ready. You don't even have to wash your stuff. You just come out, do the Iron Man thing, you know, open up, everything gets removed. And I do miss the thrills of luxury, you know what I mean? And it's all good. I think the other thrill here in what you have shared with me is also the access to unique gadgets. So are you like a bit of a gadget geek? Yeah, I've been called Inspector Gadget many times. Oh, wow. That's a really nice title. What do you do as an inspector graduate? No, I like anything tech. So not just cameras and drones, phone, battery technology, AR, VR. It's just, I, I follow a lot of the feeds and what's mm. going on in, in the world when it comes to things like that. Obviously, as with everyone else, then you filter whatever information you read down to the things that interest you. I do research when it comes to what gives a certain camera a certain look and what's the technology involved. If you don't look for it, it just passes by until someone talks about it. But mm. time it's old. Mm. So being in my industry, yeah, you have to stay on top of things. And the only way to stay on top of things is to research into, can it be done? And mm. then you find out if someone has done it and then. That involves what kind of gear and then suddenly you're whipping out the credit card and trying things to get away. That gets sometimes expensive. I've, I've been very fortunate. I've had a lot of sponsors 
and people that have taken care of me. And I'm extremely grateful to all of them. One of my main sponsors, False Elements, they supply me with all my dive gear and anytime I need and thermal protection mm -hmm. keeps me warm. Without them, I couldn't do what I do. It'd be so expensive. It's just like the dive travel thing that you said that I've had a very fortunate to have so many different experiences. It all comes at a cost and you need some luck, a lot of money. Um, that comes with a bit of blessing, but I think we're not certain exactly. could only have either yeah. or both. Another regular visitor of Van Kickstart. I guess it on the regular inspector gadget. I even have a, s a traveling a bag, one of those carry on bags that follows me like a little, little roadblock of dog. Yeah. That's, that's, that's my, that's my need for being lazy. Okay. And it amazes me that I don't have to pull my own bag and it's just going to follow me wherever I go, like through the maze of people at an airport. So how did that work? Do you, think you have a tiny wristband that will buzz if it loses connection. It literally has cameras on it so that it will avoid people and stop, catch up. It ducks around people. I've had crazy mad looks. I'm looking at you with envy. They am about to travel with my two sets of regulators. They are down heavy. <laughs> See, there's a downside. There's a downside to uh, it. If you put expensive stuff in there, you're going to keep on wanting to turn around to make sure instead of somewhere else. I've had someone grab the bag and say, sir, you forgot your bag. I'm like, no, it's following me. Just leave it. Thank you. So there is a downside to it. You can put like cheap junk, in which case bags kind of not really necessary. It's just a fun toy. Really. The novelty factor. Yeah. You've yeah. not looked down the novelty factor yet. No, it's there's the gadget guy that <laughs> wanted one so badly and hit buy or back this project. It's suitcase that follows you. Oh my God. I have to have this. <laughs> yeah, good okay. I want to uh, ask you questions that I asked all my guests. Okay. The first question is, out of your non diving gear, mm -hmm. what are the top three items that you will always pack with you? Wow. That's a tough question for me because of the, my weight limits. I'm so conscious of what I can bring. So there isn't really anything interesting besides my phone. I think what would be more interesting is actually the bag that I use to pack my things in. Okay. So non-diving, but for the dive gear, uh, because weight's important to me. Mm -hmm. it's, it's seriously something I think about. So I, I have a variety and I spend more time thinking about that than do I need to bring shampoo? <laughs> because literally, so, and for many of these trips, basic toiletries, a t-shirt, flip-flops, that's it. So nothing too interesting, except for the bag. I've got some great gear from, from film, like duffel bags or stuff like that. But even suitcases, I hate using the Pelican cases if I can avoid it because they, you know, it's a target for theft and all, but sometimes I need to because it's safer for the gear on site, not during production, like when you're on the lift, those things flow, but it weighs so much. So depending on where I'm going, what I need to do, I pack differently. So the bag would be the best piece of gear. Super conscious of weight, not your own weight, the stuff you can really. Yeah. Actually, I'm sure you hand carry a lot more as well. I cheat so much because batteries alone for the production camera and the video lights, 12 kilos just in batteries. And the camera itself costs so much that if it can't help, I want to hand carry that itself too, just for safety. By the time you're done, 
all the bits and pieces and batteries which you check in way usually way over the limit so you have to pretend nothing heavy here (laughs) my backpack is nothing and so many times even though you you have a carry-on bag and a backpack your backpack's heavier because they want to weigh the roller it's been the bane of my travel which is why again i'm looking forward to traveling light so much it's something that i i haven't been able to do for a long time yeah next question What are the three top tips that you would give on the safe diving practice? Mm-hmm. Safe diving practice. I think the most important one, which gets overlooked even by a lot of professionals, is to listen to the people with experience. Listen to your guide. Listen to the instructor that's taking you down. Listen to the people that know that area that gets overlooked so often. So often you get instructors who think that they know everything there is, and then you get incidents. Mm-hmm. involving very experienced people just not understanding where they're diving and what to their surroundings are. So that would be number one. Mm-hmm. Two, probably your gear. Know your gear. Make sure that it's functional. I've seen very often people diving with equipment that they have not taken care of. Having dive computers fail, not being charged and all that. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame because this is gear that you own. Even if you rent it, check first. A funny story, when I did my advanced open water all those years ago, I did it in Malta with a dive company that no longer exists. I used rented equipment because I was traveling through, through Europe that time, decided to stop and do some diving over there and get my advanced open water. The BCD that I rented looked okay, but on my very first dive, which the instructor wanted to do a deep dive and the wreck dive combined in one. He, on top of that, was handling another group, which I was shocked. It's a glorified hold your hand kind of trip down. I'll make sure you're fine. You'll be fine. I'll show you a wreck. And you get a deep dive, take care of, tick, tick. So as I was descending, I couldn't deflate for some reason. I pressed the button, nothing happened. I, I tried to dump falls. The air wouldn't release. So I remember him telling me like, my BCD, like some do, if you pull on the inflator, that's a release as well. So you can release it that way. I pull not very hard and the whole bloody thing comes off. Oh God. And there's a giant hole in my BCD at that point. All the air just comes out. And my buddy looks at me because it's taken me a long time to come down. He looks at me and goes, are you okay? And my instructor doesn't see. It's my buddy who's asking me, am I okay? And I look at the hose, I look at him, I'm like, and he goes, and he just keeps on diving. <laughs> fresh out of open water. And I was thinking, where the book do they tell you how to deal with this? Because I can no longer inflate. I'm super heavily weighted because I'm a new diver. It's cold as well. That's why I'm wearing so many weights. And I'm like dropping like a stone. My mask is fogging. So I'm, I'm not really panicking because I remember I was told like the bottom was at 40 mm-hmm. because it was a deep dive and the wreck dive. I had to figure this out by the time I get down. I couldn't really see because you know, everything was fogged up. And one of the guest divers actually grabbed my BC and stopped me. By that time, we were already almost at the bottom. He asked me, are you okay? He's like, <laughs> do you think, you know? <laughs> and the instructor finally came by because he turned around, looked the other direction. I went by him, he turned back and I was gone. 
you know? <laughs> so he had no idea because I had just gone zoom right past him. And thank God there's a bottom. I'm not at some wall. I was not happy. The air, the air was still okay. My air consumption was still all right. So uh, they wanted to ruin everyone's dive. So he, he put me at the top of the rip where I could hold on first for a while. I said, I you know, you, you guys go and look, I'll be here. I'll wait. And at the depths where I can still have some air to spare. And then at the end of the dive, because I'm weighted so poorly and I'm such a new diver, I couldn't maintain my buoyancy for the, the safety stop. He actually went down and gave me a giant rock to hang on to. When I came out of that dive, it was a shore dive, obviously, so mm -hmm. to swim back to shore and then up back there. He started yelling at me. I immediately ended my, my class and I continued the yeah. rest of my dives in Malaysia when I went there. This dive, sh dive shop is no longer the first, <laughs> but man, the equipment failure. And this was rental equipment because I trusted someone to take care of it. So what do you do? A lot of people think you've bought something. You expect it to work. If you want it to work, you have to take care of it. I think in diving is mm. that you have to be skeptical the whole time. Yes. You have to be the last person checking your gear. It's your life at stake. Yeah, exactly. It's your life. It's not anyone else's life. If you're the one wearing it, taking it down, mm -hmm. this is what's going to keep you alive and all give you the means to survive. Yeah. When you talk about safety is what you're wearing and things like that. Looking after gear, listening to the guys involved and following them, that's number one. Mm -hmm. Even as a professional, I never get into the water unless I know what the conditions are like. And there are times when I'm, I'm told what I need to do, but then I will need to do my research beforehand mm -hmm. so I can advise my producers. These are the two main things for me. Follow the dive rules, don't break them. Don't think that you can cheat. Everything's been laid out to you by your equipment. You've been given the advice. If your dive computer is screaming at you, listen, there's nothing in the water that's worth your life. You can come back and see it another day. Too many people I know decide that they can just go into decode. A lot of people fail to listen to the warnings that have been provided by your own equipment and by the things that you've learned. You, you can't cheat. No, you can't. No. If the, the physics tells you that you need to be at a certain depth at, by a certain time, do it by all means, because whatever miraculous thing that you've seen down there, it's not yep. worth your life. I have been in that position so many times. I once filmed a spider crab molting. The, the crab itself just molted and then it was picking all the bits and putting it back on itself. So I thought there were two crabs, but one was empty shell after it molted and it was grabbing all the little bits of algae and, and, and whatever anemones and all that. And I filmed it going like, okay, I need to wear my clothes again. It was so incredible. And when the producers saw that and sent it off to the scientists to, so that they could record their comments, a lot were amazed. They were saying, this hasn't been recorded before. This is the first time. Of course, the producers were like, yeah. you know, <laughs> because if no one's seen, you know, yeah, it's saleable footage Yeah, for the show. I don't get any income from that because I'm on contract just to film. And to me, it was great to see that happen. I didn't know they hadn't been filmed before, mm -hmm. but the crab was still changing his clothes when I had to go. So I, I pushed it as long as I could, but even though I still had air, I was thinking, go back up. I actually did that. I went back and it was gone. Yeah. I think it was somewhere in Indonesia where the Liverpool went and it was so remote that if I had run into trouble, 
The boat will have to get back to an area where the helicopter can come pick you up. Even then, it would take days to get to a chamber and within reach of the Coast Guard to fly me out because you're in such a remote area. <laughs> it's not always your life. Yeah, and safety is very important. Yeah. Thanks for that. Next question. What is your greatest fear? I would say, oh, my producers don't hear this. I would say that being left out in the ocean and or be drifting away and not being found. That literally is one of my biggest fears because you get into the water, all of us get into water and we surface with the expectation of being picked up or at least being able to swim to a coast mm -hmm. where even if you're not familiar with it, to get back on land. But to actually surface and not see a boat in sight and be in the water for a long time, I've been in that situation a couple of times. Both times I was actually with someone else. So less scary, but there was one occasion where I surfaced and I knew there were no dive boats anywhere nearby. My other boat was nowhere to be seen. I won't mention which company, but they had gone back to totally different area. And there was a strong current, so I wasn't in where I was. I was moving fast. And we feel it. And no land inside, just blue water all around for almost 40 minutes. By the 30 minute mark, you're starting to wonder, is, is this going to be days, hours, <laughs> days, or what is it? But obviously there's a search pattern and people mm -hmm. can find you, but even knowing that I might have been found eventually within hours, it's still a horrible feeling to think that you've been left. Forgotten. Yeah. In the water. I think it probably is then the greatest fear of many experienced divers where you go, yeah. especially when you go out. the water. It's yeah. coming up, you know? Yeah. Okay, we move to the happy place. <laughs> what is your greatest extravagance? When it comes to diving or purchases? <laughs> that you consider as extravagance? I would consider being able to go on all these dive trips for personal reasons. Because first of all, you need the time to do these things and then the financial ability to do it as well. Being able to tick off something just because you want to do it. You're going to mm -hmm. fund it yourself. You're going to find the time to go out there and do it. That would be it. It's hard to actually pinpoint any particular thing that I've done that because there's one thing always leads to another. Yeah. So I would say just the ability to go on personal excursions, that would be the greatest extravagance because it's not just time and money, it's other people's time. It, it takes time away from family too. Mm -hmm. I really have to travel so much for work. Mm -hmm. So the people that I care about, I leave them behind my parents, my sister, my wife, the dog, I'm away from home. So it's their time too that I'm spending, mm -hmm. not just my own. Mm -hmm. So there's that. It's more about the experience. The memories. Yeah. So what do you value most in friends? Friends, I guess loyalty, people that stick by you mm. for whatever reason, obviously you need not to be selfish enough to understand why they've done it and recognize if you've made a mistake on your own, but a true friend will stay by you regardless of what mistakes you've made as long mm. as you're prepared to own up to mm. those mistakes and eventually. I respect that a lot in friends. And I don't expect friends to constantly stay in touch, but when a good friend would want to meet up, see how things are going every now and then, and uh, 
not be too quick to jump on you. They've heard something on the grapevine. That's the problem with social media these days. There's so much nonsense going around and backstabbing. People get opinionated. But if you can cut through that, and as a good friend, if you can, and you can figure out what's going on and sit down and talk to your friend about it. That's, that's what I consider a good friend. It's a loyal friend. That's actually very nice because you need that day years of safety. Yeah, because everyone's got an opinion. It's just like any relationship. Hmm. If you can patch things over and carry on, then the friendship is stronger. Yeah. You know, all relationship, be it husband and wife or whatever, instead of just, I'm done. Goodbye. So a good friend is a loyal friend to me. That's why some of my good friends are the friends that I've been with for the longest time because through thick or thin, whatever they could stay in touch and stay friends. Yeah. Not as judgmental. Life is too short anyway. <laughs> That's okay. true. If we swap seats, so you're the host <laughs> of the podcast Wait. and I'm the interview. Right. Um, what? question would you have for me to answer? Just want to, don't be too greedy. <laughs> no, I guess it'd be, where are you going next? When's not next, but the next big adventure. It has to be something that's realistic that you're looking, really looking forward to do. Mm -hmm. so what's the next big adventure? Um, I'm going to not talk about outdoor adventures because mm. I, I do that regularly. That's so, fine. Yeah. To be really honest, I think. Doing this podcast, mm -hmm. it's a big adventure for me. That's a good one. Yeah. I, I enjoy doing it. It's a creative project. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I love it. Like the, every conversation, there's so much information. Mm -hmm. It's not restricted to diving. It's a, it must have been so interesting, Adrian, because you told me a few, like of the, the people that yeah. you've interviewed and yeah. you've asked them. They seem like they come from such a diverse range of yeah. characters and experiences and yeah. The things they do with the common theme of being on the water. Yeah, but we can only be on water that one hour at a time most. So it's about the connection, the people sharing the dialogues. It's a passion project. Right. I'm doing it to create dialogue and then raise awareness through different conversations I have with people. So this is probably my current biggest adventure I'm get, getting mm -hmm. onto. And personally, it's the other thing that's for me is I have kept myself in, a, in private for a, a long time. Through work, if I needed to just go onto the stage and speak or what have you, that's fine. That role I can assume, but not a role where I actually expose to myself on the social media right. platform. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course, as a presenter. And a yeah. 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 So um, this is actually a big adventure for me. I think it's an exciting one too. You have been listening to Service Time, Confessions of a Diving Junkie. My guest today was Kevin Lin. It was amazing to hear how he has evolved from a hobbyist photographer to cinematographer, contributing to several shows that many of us have enjoyed in our own living room. He has certainly left an impression that traveling light could be a reality for scuba divers. So, we shall see. Surface Time is executively produced by Noetic Production and Music by Dress Studio. If you have enjoyed our Surface Time chat, please show us some love and subscribe. And even better, share with your friends and family so that they get to be inspired. And if you would like to share your stories on Surface Time, we would love to hear from you. Please email us to faith at servicetimechats.com. 